What's up, guys? It's Michael McHenry, and this is Dingo Talk. What's going on, Chuckleheads? I am Carlo Guadagnino. This is the Ding- this is Dingo Talk. My guest this week, Major League Base, former Major League Baseball player Michael McHenry, played for the Colorado Rockies, the Pittsburgh Pirates, and I believe was the bunting master in St. Louis. Correct, sir? That's what I've been told. Yeah, that's what I've been told. I mean, the way I laid down that bunt when I was in St. Louis for three weeks, only the bat I got minus the strikeout. Yeah, they, they, they say it's one of the best moments in St. Louis history. Yeah. It sits in the rotunda of the history. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think the bat they actually took in Bronston. <laughs> sure. So, um, Michael, first, thank you for, for joining us. Um, I want to start with, how did you, why baseball? Why not football? Why not basketball? How'd you get into baseball? Like I told you, you know, prior to this is I kind of slid out of my mom's womb right into home plate. It was something I wanted to do. I was very hyperactive and it was something that kept me busy. You know, I tried a lot of different things and baseball is just the fit. I feel like God just kind of molded me to play. I'm not a big, tall guy. I'm kind of built, you know, stocky, like a power lifter. So it fit really well and I loved it. And, you know, also probably was a little bit of a pig, pig pen a little bit so it's always like be in the dirt and whatnot so yeah it just fit my personality and it- baseball was your thing that's you were a little bit of a pig pen like to be in the dirt were you always a catcher or, or where where did you start position wise anywhere they put me and um, honestly like you know as a kid you, one of the better athletes always plays shortstop I would literally just jump around didn't matter if I was the better player or not I like playing third they never let me play first because I wasn't tall until I got into middle school then I was the tallest kid. And then all of a sudden I was not at all. So I always wanted to catch. I couldn't get back there. And then I got bumped up a level. And when I got bumped up a level, I got bumped up because I could catch and handle the, you know, kids throwing a little bit harder. So, you know, at eight, nine years old, I was catching 12 year olds in the little league. And that's kind of where it started. But it seemed like every team I played on, even when I got to high school, always had a guy that just exclusively kept caught. So being able to kind of be a butterfly of sorts or a squirrel, I was always just able to move around, but really honed in on that catching almost all the time my junior year on. And then when I got recruited in college, everybody's recruited me for everything else except catching. And then finally that all worked out. So Carl, we'll, we'll dive right into it. You ended up at Middle Tennessee State, but there was also another team in the running there for a little bit. Now, did they want you as a catcher as well? Yeah, they kind of came in last minute. It's a Kentucky Wildcats, same color. I'm, I'm in. I'm obsessed with that Dodger blue. Jackie Robinson is my favorite player. And I've always been like, I guess, enamored with that color. I had, you know, the the Boston hat or the Brooklyn hat, the blue with the white, just something I always loved as a kid. So, you know, that's kind of what tied me to those two things. Funny that they're the same. And uh, both had very old school coaches, very hard nosed. Uh, Madison was probably going to leave to Kentucky. So it's kind of out pretty much immediately there. And I also wanted to stay in state. It was easier for my parents, wasn't ex- more expensive, even though everybody in my family, including my parents, wanted me to go to Kentucky. And I chose Middle Tennessee. It was the first like real grown up decision I made and I went against the grain. So uh, it, was, it was tough, but I'm glad I did it. And I definitely made the right choice. When you and your, and your former coach, you guys kind of, you had an interesting relationship when he came to offer you the scholarship, right? Yeah, I mean, first off, my one of probably the, most impactful human beings of my life was my high school coach. And I didn't realize that for a long time because I was so narrow focused. Tommy Farr, national coach of the year, three times, couple gold medals, 
I mean, he's probably got more state championships than anybody that I could think of in the state of Tennessee, maybe even the country. He's been one of the best coaches, period. So I went from that to the guy that brought my scholarship in, which kind of blew my mind. Old school, right? Uh, Steve Peterson walks in the door, you know, kind of walks in. He felt like he had a big presence, not a big guy, former catcher. He had like hands that were kind of like this when he shook him because he was that guy that played through anything. So walks in, bow-legged a little bit like he's a cowboy, sits down. He goes, all right, son, I got one question. I'm like, I'm sweating, right? He's in my living room. I'm sweating. He's like, do you want to catch? I said, yes, sir. That's the only thing I want to do. He goes, good. So if not, I was leaving with your scholarship. I was like, okay. I didn't think anything of it until like years later. I remember my wife asked me, she's like, how did Coach Peter recruit you? And I told her, she goes, are you kidding me? I was like, no, is that not, not I guess that's not normal, huh? It's like, a no, nod. two and a half hours to your house to say, do you want to catch? Right. So, but then finding out that his uh, associate head coach wanted to recruit me. Coach Pete picked another guy because he knew where he stood with catching. And that guy ended up not signing. So I always give my coach our time. Hey, where's that guy that you were going to recruit? How did, how did, how did his career end up? Where'd he go? And uh, lo and behold, God rest his soul. He just passed away two years ago, but uh, just a good man taught me that hard nosed mentality that every catcher should have and kind of led into my career. Well, and that decision to make you the catcher kind of worked out in your first year, huh? With the, uh, I believe, oh. the first game. First game that you ever caught a perfect game. Yeah, the first game was a perfect game. And the funny thing is, I actually ended up playing outfield more than I did catch that year. And I still lay into him. I would still lay into him until you, you passed away. Like, hey, coach, like, you literally played me in the outfield more. He's like, well, you need defensive replacement. And you could throw good from the outfield. You were fast at that time. And I was like, yeah, but I thought you wanted me to catch, you know, just exclusively. Like, shouldn't I have been in the bullpen? And so that hard-nosed mentality, you know, he did not like being, you know, pushed back on. But it was fun. And then, of course, my freshman year after really struggling, I had a higher GPA than my batting average. Never a good thing. <laughs> Went to summer ball and made the all-star team. Came back. He goes, get in my office. And I was like, oh, what did I do? You played third base all summer? I'm like, well, yes, I did, coach. And I had a blast. He goes, you're catching. I was like, yeah, I'm ready to get to know my pitchers. When I said, I'm getting ready to know my pitchers. That's when he said, I knew you wanted to catch and I knew I picked the right guy. So that simple phrase is what sold him finally. And I was a sophomore. So, so the next two years, how does the progression go? So I had a weird sophomore year. So my freshman year, I obviously struggled. Uh, it was the first time I ever failed. So it's a blessing in disguise, but it was a very hard moment for a kid that you know, it was all everything in, in, in uh, Tennessee, which I didn't realize that until I was, I don't know, 2014 when I got put in the Hall of Fame. I was like, I was that good? I had no clue. Um, so, like, you just kind of black out, right? You have no idea. And then you're, you know, you look down the line almost 20 years later and you're still a part of all these numbers and top 10 in all these categories. It's very humbling. And, you know, I actually cried at that uh, Hall of Fame uh, event. But then, you know, you think about, man, I never struggled. And I go in, I'm, I'm killing school, which everybody thought would be a problem for me because I had learning disabilities. I killed school, Dean's List. And all of a sudden, I killed the fall. And then I really struggle. So I go off summer ball. I meet somebody that takes it, me under their wing. They saw something in me. They fixed one simple problem, had a huge summer, come back. And then the progression started where I'm supposed to play and I'm starting and I get mono. I get mono right during the Christmas break. I lose 45 pounds one of the worst cases of mono that they've seen. So I ended up at Children's Hospital because I couldn't get anywhere else. 
because my next door neighbor uh, growing up had a connection to Children's Hospital. So I get in there. I was like a case study. Were, like doctors were coming in and whatnot to look at my throat and whatnot. So I lost 45 pounds, told me I was going to miss season. I don't miss seasons. I came out, ended up playing the first game, had two home runs. Then I went like over 28 or something. And then ended up being all conference, all region, had a good year. And then in the middle of that year, I also caught MRSA, which was miserable. Didn't know if I was going to have my leg. So it was a weird year. And then I had surgery in the fall, right before my draft year. But then in the junior year, I became an All-American, drafted seventh round. So there was a lot of things going on, a lot of adversity, a lot of whatever. But I was so hyper-focused on my dream of getting drafted and playing the major leagues. Nothing else mattered. So that was my focus. And even when I went into surgery with MRSA, which I always try to maybe forget about, it's part of the story that like I never tell because I forget about it, but it's such a big moment because I'm in the middle of my season and I missed 10, I missed 10 days. I had MRSA, I had surgery, didn't know if I was going to have my leg. And then I'm playing Friday night against South L within, I missed five full games. That's it. Jesus. Yeah. So like if that can help some kid realize like you, if you put your mind to something, you can do it like period. Like as long as you don't allow your mind to say you can't, because that shuts that door. If you shut that door. It's hard to open back up. But if you say, no, screw you, mind, I'm keep going. Screw you. You can't tell me, nope, I'm not, not doing it. It just opens. And then the capacity of what you can do just forever changes. Not that moment. It's forever. Cause you have something deeper to grab onto in moments of adversity or trial or tribulation. So that that's the reality of life that I wish kids would start to understand. We live in a, in a time in a society that, kids in, in just our, I guess, general culture has gotten pretty soft. Mm-hmm. And I don't know any other better, I don't know any other way to say it is they've gotten soft because they don't want to look at the heart, but the hardest part of life. We have one absolute, like, absolute in our life. And that's, we're going to die. So let's live every day, right? So you're going to face problems. You're going to lose family members. Like, God forbid you have a pandemic, but like, we should be prepared for, for those things and enjoy it while it's not here, but be prepared and still be able to get through it and enjoy those processes too, because that's, that's the reality of life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The hard times are what make when you have the good times that much better. Amen. Well said. So we will get back to the seventh round, but first I want to, so you, so with the learning disabilities and excelling in school, what were one, what did you go to school for? Let's start there. And then the second part to that is how did you kind of, what were your studying tactics or learning techniques with the learning disabilities that you had that made you successful? So first, give you a background on the learning disabilities. I was on the dyslexia spectrum and had ADD and, and some other things going on, but like I had an audio perception problem. So like like hooked on phonics, you know, they say hooked on phonics work for me. I used to say hooked on phonics doesn't work. And as a kid, like it doesn't work, you know, cause it didn't work for me. Like it was something that like my brain can't hear those, those sounds and process it that way. So like obviously learning a new language, anything like that was incredibly tough because mm-hmm. I memorize words, right? So my way of learning words and spelling words, I have to memorize them. If I've never seen it before, I have no hope. I can try by like visualizing it, but I can't hear it. So that was a big, big problem. And then there's some other things underlying, but that was the biggest problem. So when I got to school in high school, you're kind of in flow and you spend so much time at school that 
it, it really isn't too difficult, even if it, you're taking a hard class, whatever, because you show up every single day. And I was lucky to have some teachers in high school teach me a little bit more about writing, a little bit more how I should process some things. And I went to a tutor from second grade through the fifth grade, three days a week from, you know, I guess that was three years all the way. And I think I stopped the summer before my sixth grade year. So like I, and I learned on a video game. It's mm -hmm. literally how I, I learned my spelling on a video game. So I was, I was getting rewarded for accomplishment. And that was obviously played really good to a guy that's, you know, ends up being a high performer in life. So that was a positive. So when I went to school, you know, I felt like I was going to be able to get away from, you know, oh, you can take an untimed ACT. You can do this. I never took anything. I, I just said, I got, I don't want to do that. I'm, I want to do it on my own. And I was trying to run away from it. No matter what I did, I couldn't run. And then I get to school and they put me in these two alternative classes. I test out of one and they said, no, we don't believe you. Like that's too, that was, the writing was too good. And it was a take home paper. So like, okay. And then I tested out of the math and I said, and then the lady was like, yeah, we don't have another class you could go into because people don't usually test out. And I'm like, so I tested out of both, both of these things of things I shouldn't be in. Mm -hmm. And I still have to stay in them because there's nowhere to go or she thinks of cheating. So I ended up taking 18 hours my freshman year because those classes were, you know, I thought above me and ended up making the Dean's list. But yeah, I was a guy that was a note card guy. Uh, I was a highlight guy and I was a write, like rewrite it. So if, if, if I thought it was going to be on something, I would write it, note card it, highlight it, and it would kind of go in. And then I learned over time that I was more a conversational learner and a kind of dive in the deep end type. And that's how I learn now. So like these conversations are so good for me to learn, let alone just be a part of, you know, something cool in a podcast. So yeah, that's the start. And I studied exercise science and um, I love it. Exercise, exercise and weightlifting is probably my second passion. It's something I'm very, very uh, in love with. I, I probably will at some point, you know, have some type of performance facility or something that I pour into through my mentor, Charles Patron. Um, it'll be powered by him. I said I wanted to carry on his name. So that'll be something I try to do at some point in my life. Well, I think that's a great place to pause. As I said, we're going to get back to that seventh round and the draft and, and making, making the dream happen. But we got to take a break. We're going to send it to Chambers General Store. If you ever get the chance to stop down into Bethany, West Virginia, it's the only store in town. Uh, if they don't have it, you don't need it. It's literally the truth. They got hammers, nails, candles, all that stuff. And they make you a breakfast sandwich, the daily lunch specials, soups and soups of the day. Um, you can get the that phrase on a shirt. Uh, you can find them on Facebook, Harry Chambers and Chambers General Store. Uh, this is Michael McHenry. I am Carla Guadagnino. This is Dingo Talk, and we will be right back. watching another exciting episode of Dingo Talk, recorded deep in a hidden lair in Bethany, West Virginia, where when you visit, make sure you stop by Chambers General Store. Grab one of our hot breakfast sandwiches made fresh all day. Don't forget the biscuits and gravy or one of the daily lunch specials. And if none of that trips your trigger, cold cut sub sandwiches and wraps made fresh all day to your order. Hey, and don't be the only alumni on the block that doesn't have the Chambers, if you we don't have it, you don't need it t-shirt or 
the latest edition of the Bethany, West Virginia, shroom capital of the world in the psychedelic green. Hey, now back to you, Carlo. What's going on, Chuckleheads? I am Carlo Guadagnino. This is Dingo Talk. My guest, Michael McHenry, former baseball, former Major League Baseball player, now current broadcaster for AT&T Sports. We left off. Michael was telling us about the education side and the leading up to fulfilling a, a lifelong dream. Now we're going to get into that lifelong dream. So your junior year, the year you get drafted, you become an All-American. What's the draft process like for a, for a college guy? It's a little bit of a mess. It's obviously changed a lot with social media. Um, I'm kind of dating myself, but you know, back then you get those letters, you fill them out, and you kind of hope and pray. You meet with some guys. Uh, you have agents calling, depending on where you're at. Um, I only met with, a, I guess, three. Ended up picking a buddy of mine's agent to maybe, I guess the best way to put it is be on standby, right? If, if they can only be an advisor. Now I'm sure that's changed the way that they can pay you know, athletes and stuff. So everything's completely different but back in my day <laughs> the reality was it's like it was it was kind of a little bit old school right they would come and and show up and you really didn't know much there was a lot more that was unknown than known you know I remember filling out right before the draft the Marlins sent me this letter and it was in depth like hey we're looking at taking you in the third round blah 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 and I filled it out sent it and I had to find a scanner a printer and all this stuff I'm a college student right so I do it and Third round goes by, they take Hatcher, who ends up striking out in the big leagues. You know, years later, once again, Hatcher strikes me out in the big leagues. The catcher they took struck me out in the big leagues. So <laughs> he became a great pitcher. I ended up making the big leagues as a catcher. And um, that's a that's a funny thing about all of it. You, you just don't know. So you just kind of keep your, your your mind open and just let it happen. But it's a crazy process. It's, it's definitely uh, taxing on your mind. And when you could just let it go and just trust what's going to happen, that's when the best things happen. That's exactly what happened when I finally heard my name called. So so now when you hear your name called, is it similar to other drafts where you get the phone call from the organization or are you watching and kind of on the, like on pins and needles kind of waiting for your name to get called? Well, thinking I was going to get drafted in a certain area, like where my projection was, well, the draft didn't kind of play out the way everyone predicted it to. So I kept getting pushed back. And I was like, about the fifth round when they drafted another catcher in my, uh, I guess, what it, it wouldn't be division, but my conference. That's what it is, conference in college. So I've been out for a while, like I said. So I had a guy get drafted. Well, I was all, all conference, all American, and he got drafted. And my buddies were like, you know, kind of getting weird on me. And I'm like, I'm just going to go outside. You know, like I was never a person that competed with anybody but myself. and it wasn't about him getting drafted, but they were making it about him. Like, oh my gosh. So I just went outside, grabbed my basketball. And when I needed freedom, I always hit off a tee, I threw into a net or I shot basketball. So I went out, shot basketball. As soon as that happened, it wasn't 25 minutes later, my wife starts running down, has my phone. You know, Scott Corman called me, said, we just took you with our seventh round pick. So that was, that was a special moment. And also goes back to what I was talking to a minute ago is he hadn't talked to me since the fall of my junior year. And that's who drafted me. So it's kind of wild how that all played out. The last team I would have thought drafted would have been the Colorado Rockies comparative to all the teams I talked to within the weeks of the draft. Now, what's the process like after the draft? So now your, your mentality is, all right, let's go to work. Where do you go first? Well, the first thing I did was I called my team that was going to play some ball with in the Cape. said, hey, I'm going. Thank you. Appreciate it. Then I called the guy, my advisor, once I understand you know, kind of ins and outs of what's going on. He tells me my my worth. 
and he said, I'm going to do this. He got a little bit more of a slot, so he paid for pretty much his services. So that was one, two. And then it was like, okay, now where am I going? And I thought I was going to Tri-Cities. So Tri-Cities to me is Johnson City, Tennessee. Oh, contraire. Let's go to Tri-Cities in Washington State. I was ah. like, um, that's, that's way up here, right? Yeah. So lo and behold, about a about day or two later, I packed myself up, carry my glove to the airport and head to Washington State. I'm staying with the host family. Luckily, had that experience in college a couple of times. So that wasn't really crazy. Rented a, got my mom and dad to rent a car and paid them back because I wasn't old enough to rent a car. So that was the start. And then kind of I'm out as a Tri-City Dust Devil. So my first Dust Devil out there and, you know, played at the biggest park in minor league and uh, in, in the minor leagues period. It was a miserable place to hit. So just a lot of ins and outs and, and learning that that realm. And I, I'll never forget this is Somebody asked me this recently, and you'll think this is funny. Is they're like, "What do you remember the most when you first showed up?" I said, "Taking a shower, where the guy is on the other side, and there's <laughs> nothing in the bottom." So it's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna get to know you well, real fast." Here we go. Uh, we're gonna be friends. Moment. Yeah, yeah, we're now friends. Nice to meet you. I'm Michael. How are you? All right. Yeah. But like, I'd never seen that. Like, this isn't the showers I'm used to. You know, like, so. But you, you. You just kind of go, you know, you're, you're chasing the dream and it doesn't matter if you gave me a stick and ball and no glove. I would, I would try to figure out a way, whether I failed or not, I had to leave it all out there. So then what's the minors like compared to once you make it to the show? What's the, what is the, the, the gap? What's the difference uh, other than the talent? I mean, talent wise, we know that there's talented guys that are, that are progressing and developing their skill, but for for the everyday minor leaguer, what what was what's travel like? What's a game like? Money. You ever been to the Grand Canyon? Yeah, yeah. You know the gap between the two sides. That's the yeah, gap. That's pretty much. That's pretty much the gap. Yeah, yeah. And like they tell you, if you walk down there, it's like 118 degrees and you could die. Yeah, it's kind of like that. Like the best way to put it is, and it's obviously changed. They they've done a really good job. They they help with living some now, um, not with married people, but. Um, They've done a lot of good things, uh, trickle down, especially at the top minors, like reward you as you go. But yeah, it's tough. But like being from a college that didn't give you a t-shirt, that didn't really care about your nutrition, that didn't care about your body, didn't. I was from a hard-nosed place. And as soon as I showed up, I had gear. I had all this stuff from my agent who set up some companies. And then I bought my own bats because I, I figured if I'm going to do this, I need it right. So I kind of felt like I was like already in the big leagues a little bit because here I'm starting my dream. I got all the stuff I could ever need. And I have so much stuff. I was able to give it to some other guys. And it wasn't the same for me as for others, because like I said, I didn't come from Kentucky or Tennessee where I got seven pairs of cleats and four gloves and 18 hats and a sweatsuit and this and that. No, I didn't get that. And that became a huge blessing because sometimes that creates entitlement. Sometimes that creates, I need this, I need that. I was never that way. I just, if I needed it, I went and got it. You know, if I needed a, a new jock strap, I didn't say, uh, I need a new jock. No, I just went to the store just like I would if I was in college until I realized like I have an agent and he, he'll take care of a lot of that. So at the end of the day, for a lot of guys, that's the hardest part is just figuring that out. But then you figure out the balance as you go along and depending on where you're at and you know who your host family is and who your friends, friends are, it's really more important to be surrounded by, you know, people that, are going to support your dream and not pull it down. And that's where you got to really kind of 
figure out who the dogs are, where you'll catch the fleas if you run with them, opposed to, you know, who, who's my wolf pack that I can mm -hmm. linger on to. And that's, that's where I think the big difference is, because I saw a lot of guys with incredible amount of talent that didn't take care of their bodies, ended up getting hurt, you know, spent a lot of time going out, doing this, and, you know, chasing the wrong things. And, you know, eventually that's going to catch up to you. You can get away with it some, but if you do it a lot, you know, you're playing so many games and they're expecting such a high performance with no excuses. You got to, you got to make sure that you're kind of narrow focused, honestly, knowing you're a human being going to make some mistakes, but you got to be narrow focused. So what's it like when you get the call to the big leagues? I was in shock to be honest. Cause like we finished a game, we had a day game. I go to my apartment, my phone rings, my wife picks it up. And anytime you have an unknown number and you're in the minor leagues, it's like this. I mean, you just start pounding, bro. Like, okay, okay, okay. Is this the call? I mean, it could be anything, right? But when you're at the stage, AAA, you're on the roster, there's only one thing you think. And I'd had a couple calls already, like boom, 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 boom. Hey, we're going to put you on the text book. Boom, 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 boom. Hey, you're not going to play today. Something's going on in the big leagues. Because I was obviously on the 40-man. There was no taxi squad then, so mm -hmm. it wasn't the same as it is now. So, like, this time I was like, okay, yeah, unknown number. Sure, it's nothing. Hello? Hey, I uh, just want to let you know um, you need to be in Denver tomorrow. And my wife heard it, and I swear she was like a flying squirrel <laughs> way back here, and I just hear, boom, and she lands on my back, and she's fired up, and that's kind of how it all started. Drove up because we were in Colorado Springs, so I was able to drive the next morning. Showed up, BP, here we go. And 10, 10 days in a row at home, won them all, and got into the playoff push. Of course, I didn't play. I was just hanging out. I was the first guy to get called up from AAA because uh, some there was a there was an issue or something with one of the catchers. So they just I was I was in insurance and I got to go up, get in a bat, hang out, and learn and watch our team just absolutely destroy other teams. And Troy Tulitsky just went off for ten days at home. Now, so you as as a guy, you're you're sitting in the in, in the big league dugout for the first time. Who's a player that you that you got to see in those 10 days that you were just like, yeah, I'm a big leaguer now. I'm just like him. Peyton Manning. He stole my locker all the time. All the time he was in my locker. He came over like two or three times and hang out with Todd Helton. And <laughs> I being from Knoxville, us having a trainer that's similar, the man just came over and he's a big man. He just stole my locker, right? So Todd's right here and he's just talking to blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, I really need my locker. I don't want to say anything. So I leave, I come back, still in there. I don't want to say anything. And then finally, I remember he was like, hey, am I in your locker? Yeah. 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 Can I get in? You know, like you're, you're in our respect. So like, yeah, everybody's talking about, oh, I saw this. No, I saw Pete Manning. He's in my locker. Yeah. So, and your manager at the time in Colorado becomes the manager in Pittsburgh, and you end up back at you end up there with him what's that experience like how do you find out you're going to pittsburgh so i had clint hurdle and chad uh jim tracy was the bench coach hurdle got fired before i got there yeah so then he took that job so like i knew hurdle way better than tracy because when tracy came in it was kind of like i already had an established relationship with hurdle mm -hmm. uh, so I was in I was in AAA. I got traded from the Rockies in 11 to Boston. 
from, from when I got there, I spent a day in spring training, went to the big, got called up on the taxi squad, went to Texas, stayed there for two nights. I could not leave my room because the taxi squad was different then, like I said. So nobody knew I existed. So I was there waiting, ended up flying back, spent a couple more days of spring training, went to Paul Tuckett, spent six weeks, got traded there uh, to Pittsburgh. I was in the grocery store. My wife was gone. I don't do grocery stores very well. I get all the way through the checkout line. I get that unknown number. And I'm like, oh man, what's happening? Hello? Hey, this is Ernie. Uh, you just got traded to Pittsburgh and you're going to Pittsburgh. There's no minor league team in Pittsburgh. Yeah, you're going to the big leagues, guy. Have fun. Kill it. Hang up. Two minutes later, Theo. Hey, man, thank you for all you did in the organization. And we apologize that we didn't blah, 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 blah. There were some issues. Hang up. Theo, not Theo. Uh, it was Theo. And then who was the uh, GM at the time? Not Ben Sherrington. Neil Huntington. So the manager, the GM, and my manager in AAA all called me. It was the coolest thing ever. And they didn't have to do that because I got caught in between. And there was a lot of moving pieces. And um, I didn't complain at anything. A bunch of older guys stood up for me. Really class act what, what happened there. And when Ben Sherrington became the GM, I was like, these guys do it right. So I ended up rescanning all my stuff, putting it back, packing up my Polly Pocket Playland that I lived in and headed on to Pittsburgh. So, and now that we're in Pittsburgh, there's a play. It's uh, July 26, 2011, a 19-inning ball game. Bottom of the 19th inning, a ball's hit the third base. And uh, so what's going through your mind as the ball's coming back to you? You reach, you make the tag, you hear the call. Let's walk, walk us through it. I think I'm going to the 20th inning is what I'm thinking. <laughs> First off, well, three, right? Like, he was out by five feet. He still hasn't touched home plate, right? God rest his soul, he just passed away. Um, but yeah, it was one of those moments like, you, you, in the moment I was in shock, I was in awe. I remember turning to Jerry Mills and saying, you gotta be kidding me, you gotta be kidding me. And then all of a sudden just going completely cold stone killer on him and saying, you're gonna be so disappointed in yourself when you watch this. And then all of a sudden I hear, Hurdle pulls me away, Snyder's coming in, and they're just attack mode. And obviously being a rookie, I just kind of got out of the way. But my wife was absolutely hot when I got out of the game. Um, she was fired up, and she's very even killed, but she was fired up. And looking back, man, you, you think about all the things that uh, transpired in that game. I mean, good pitching performance from the gate, uh, crazy game, a lot of opportunities to score, didn't score. The coolest thing in this entire game gets overlooked, and it's Daniel McCutcheon. Man had his turfs on, day off, was not supposed to pitch because he pitched three days in a row. He went out and threw five and what, a third or two-thirds? Should have been two-thirds, whatever it is. And that's the story. And it was a morale absolute, like, killer. You know, because we went to Philadelphia, and I, I thought they were playing on a different planet when we got there, how good they were playing. And our morale was just destroyed. I think we had one of the worst losing like streaks or like fallouts in major league baseball history. So, you know, little things like that can just absolutely destroy you. I mean, it was a national story. It ends up being part of the reason they implement replay. So it was a, it was a big deal. Um, it was a big moment, but it was really the, the emotional stress and, you know, the, the turmoil 
it, it took on the on the bodies and the minds of all of us because we were a pretty young team. Mm -hmm. A lot of veterans that were hurt, so they were coming back, and our emotion was just kind of overflowing of kind of mixed in all directions. So, so I have uh, I have two more questions, and then we're going to get to the the charities you work in. The first question. What what was what was Clint Hurdle like as a as a? I mean, we saw the bubblegum chewing, and every once in a while, when he when he decided he was going to go out there, the face got red, and, and you knew he was going to let somebody hear it. Uh, but what was he like on a day to day? It depended. Literally, it depended on the day. And he was a guy that you know he he announced his presence of authority. Uh, he's a guy I really respect. Guy I still stay in contact with. He's a leader of men, and I think if he owned that, he'd be the best at what he does, maybe on the planet. Um, I think being a former hitting coach, doing this, doing that, finding the balance to not want to be enthralled in everything is really hard. And also learning all the new age analytics and all the kind of come down effects that happens from the front office. So I think he did a great job with the balance until he didn't. And that wasn't necessarily his fault, wasn't necessarily you know, Huntington's fault. It was a mixture of all of it. And I respect him. I think he's a great father. Um, I think he's been through a lot in his life and he's willing to speak about it. And I think he touches a lot of lives. So like I said, I respect him. I think he's a leader of men and I wish that that was the focus that they really put on him and then allowed him to do his thing. But mm -hmm. it's, it's not necessarily like that in the big leagues. It's not necessarily like that as, as a manager because you have to be in the media, you have to do this, you have to do that. But he would almost be maybe the best fit for him, in my opinion, is leading the men from behind the scenes and coming out when he needs to, because his presence is so big. He can, he can almost make you feel like, Oh man, I got to back down, you know? And I felt like sometimes that's what the coaches did. And then instead of speaking up, which he wanted, we talked about before, it was like, he wanted people to, to challenge him. You're wrong, Clint, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. That's what he needed. But like, he had that presence that people didn't want to tell him he was wrong. So that, that, I think that made all of that dynamic really hard, especially having success with, with the way it was. It's hard to transition away from that. So, yeah, I think what he's doing now with uh, Colorado is absolutely outstanding. I'm hoping he comes in, and I think it's Monday or Tuesday, and says hello and whatnot, and maybe I can go to dinner with him because, uh, like I said, he huge, huge story in my life, to say the least. So. When we'd like to, if we can get him on the show, we're going to try to, that's a, he's one of the guys on our list, on our, on our short list of people. Um, lastly, the, the change. So you go from playing every day to now you're covering baseball and giving the average viewer more of an in-depth look with the way at and doing kind of the broadcasts. What went into that decision? Why go, why start getting in front of the camera? And it just, you said public speaking was a little bit of a kind of not something you did. So why, why jump into that? So you got to go all the way back to my junior year. I, I did not want to take speech class. I did not want to do it at all. Um, and the reason being is because as goofy as I could be, as fun as I could be in, in a realm of like friends and even like strangers, actually having to speak about something and, and gather my thoughts Nobody had let me just be me until my wife introduced me to the speech teacher who helped me understand there's a different way. I didn't have to do it like everybody else. And I actually got an A in speech. So that made me want to say, okay, well, now I want to go read to kids. Now I want to go try this. And I kept pushing that boundary. And it was really because of my wife. She's a communication major. 
super, super smart and super like, you know, I guess contagiously like outspoken, like an outspoken when she speaks. Mm-hmm. Like it's contagious to listen to. I don't know the best way to put it, but you're just drawn to when she speaks. So that journey started and then I got hurt in 13. So from a dark time when I got hurt, Teak went on vacation and Robbie and Spikowski actually came to me. He's like, hey, do you have any interest doing this? All being because during that time I was going to speak youth groups. I was going to speak at charities, doing everything possible to not, not think about my knee, not think about not being on the field because we're having such a cool year and it kept me busy. So uh, I think I ended up speaking at 14, 15 different places during that time, felt more comfortable, ended up going on TV, supposed to do one game, ended up doing 10. And that led to years and years later, the one of the producers calling me and saying, would you be interested? I know you're still playing. Would you be interested to come in and interview and let, let, let's just see what happens? I kind of chewed on it, whatever. I'm always like, why not? Like, good point, why not? So I went in, I did it. They offered me the job and then I had a decision to make and it was very hard. Uh, I literally broke it down to as long as this team doesn't call and they called and then they upped everything and then it got better and then it got better and then it got better. And I'm like, so I called my former coach, a guy that I really respect. And I thought would say, you're an idiot, go play. And he asked me one question, his name's Jerry Weinstein. And he goes, will you be mad when you're better than the guy you're analyzing? And I said, no, he goes, go take the job. He said, you've always been a player, but you're not, you weren't born to be a player. You're born to be a coach. I don't know what that looks like, but this is the next step I think you should take. So I took it. Well, that brings us to the end of, of the show. Um, I think that's a great way to, to kind of wrap everything up with, with how you really came out of your shell as, as a, as a public speaker and being more comfortable with it. Um, for those of you at home, you can find us everywhere. You can find us on YouTube. You can find us on TikTok, Instagram, uh, Twitter. It's Dingo. All of those are Dingo Talk, except for the tick or the is it the Insta the Instagram? It's Dingo underscore Talk because somebody already had Dingo Talk on there, and it's all about the wild dog, and that's cool with them. But they don't have anything to do with us, so don't type in Dingo Talk because that's not me. Um, you can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. We're here every Thursday at 10 a.m. I am Carlo Guadagnino, Michael McHenry. Thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to join us. And we will see you guys next week, Chuckleheads. You